Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with British Columbia's healthcare system. Feeling the stress, feeling the strain. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Dr. Kevin McLeod, internal medicine specialist, Lionsgate Hospital. And I'm always grateful for his time on the show. Kevin, thank you for coming on today. Mike, thanks for having me. You know, the, the housing discussion is a really important one. And I, you and I have said this before, but it, it has a direct impact on our ability to provide health services, right? I mean, the, mm. the cost of housing is so high and in certain communities in particular, we can't recruit people to then work in hospitals and work in clinics. You know, it's, it's becoming a giant problem being able, being able to sort of recruit people to our community to, to do the work that's needed to be done. Yeah, I think it's a great point, especially when you think that if people cannot afford to live here, well, are they going to move here to work? So, yeah, it is a big factor for, for sure. And this is a big problem in healthcare right now, the demands on the system, the strains that we're seeing on the system. And you wrote a, a really interesting thread on Twitter the other day about the cost, the cost of healthcare. And you break down the cost per patient that you see in a practice profile that's put together by the Ministry of Health every year. There's some interesting numbers in here. Can you talk a little bit about that, like how much the healthcare system costs here per patient? Because this might surprise people. Yeah, I mean, the healthcare system is is pretty expensive per patient overall. The, the really yeah. big costs in the healthcare system are hospitals. Um, you know, I mean, they're, just, they're expensive to run and then the bureaucracy of the whole thing. You know, I'm I'm a, an internal medicine doctor, so you know I see people with sort of complex medical problems, maybe people with heart attacks or cancers or those sorts of things. It's it's more mm-hmm. complex patients, and I I get this breakdown as all physicians do every year of you know, what does their practice look like based on your your billing to the medical service plan, and and um, you know the cost the co- my cost to the system per patient is is relatively low, um, you know, I think, or at least I think, maybe I'm biased, but, you know, my cost to the system per patient that's in my practice is $235 a year. Now, and that's not per visit, like that's for the entire year to provide service to to a patient. Um, now, you know, some patients are more and some are less depending on their complexity, but that works out to the to the average. My peer group's in the $380 range, so I, I think I run things really carefully with taxpayer dollars. You know, you, you could extend what I do. I mean, I have a giant waiting list and people trying to, to get in for care with, with things like physician assistants or nurses or nurse practitioners. Yeah. And, and, and instead of having a complicated bureaucracy, it's kind of like the housing question, right? Like, do we, And I don't know the answer for the housing question, but do we need a complicated bureaucracy to run it? Or do you say, no, like you as the physician, as a small business, you know, hire the staff that you need um, you're allowed to hire physician assistants. Take some of the complexity, the bureaucratic complexity out of it and and let me run things efficiently, um, you know, because they audit us. They look at what we spend every year. You know, they can see that it's a very efficient use of dollars, um, you know, in my mind. Yeah, no, I think that the case for the physician assistance has been laid out really, really convincingly by yourself and others. And government certainly says they're taking a look at it and they haven't ruled it out. But it does seem to be grinding along very, very slowly. Speaking of Dr. Kevin McLeod about our healthcare system, Kevin, uh, speaking of bureaucracy in the healthcare system, 
Really interested in your thoughts on this. Kevin Falcon, the leader of the opposition in the legislature, now BC United leader, he was on the show here last week. We were talking about the challenges in the healthcare system, and he continues to make the point that he feels the system is too bloated, too bureaucratic, not enough money spent on frontline services, too much being spent on managers and bureaucrats. I'm interested in your thoughts on that. Let's listen to Kevin Falcon here. Here's what he told me last week about this. I used to say there were 64 vice presidents earning over a quarter million a year. Now there's 70. It's actually gotten worse wow. since we raised this last year. So I just I find the whole thing frustrating because I, I think the patients are losing out because we're not focused on patients. We're focused on growing the bureaucracy. So he says there's 70 big bucks vice presidents in the system right now, and the bureaucracy is too big, too expensive. Do you agree with him? I think I think to some extent he's right. Um, I mean, you do need a bureaucracy to run a complicated system, but but sometimes I think we make it much more complicated than it needs to be. I'll never forget, and this this is years ago. It's not you know it's it's not unique to the present government or or anything like that. Um, but I remember being in emergency, and and there was one nurse who was just totally struggling, overwhelmed with the number of patients, and there was this team of people that you could sort of label were administration uh, they were coming around to try to expedite getting people out of the hospital and they kept pummeling her with questions i was sitting in the background overhearing some of this saying well what about this why have you done this and she finally said there's like eight of you guys here asking me questions there's one of me for all these patients like something's wrong and and she made a really good point i thought with that mm. because we we are a little bit top heavy maybe in the the management side of things as opposed to that direct patient care and it's it's one of the reasons i'm a, a big believer in you know you have to audit this you have to have oversight but having the physician hire that that nurse or physician assistant in their office and and run it efficiently um, you know, you don't need a huge bureaucratic structure to make that work with, with all the costs associated with that. Speaking about our healthcare system with Dr. Kevin McLeod this morning, let me ask you about another hot topic here uh, that came up the other day at the Union of BC Municipalities. That's the major organization for municipal governments in BC. And it's the, the vaccine mandate for healthcare workers. So British Columbia is the only province left now that has this mandate you must be vaccinated against COVID-19 in order to work in the system and you know we hear people saying well if we have this shortage of staff why do we not just get rid of this this mandate and bring these unvaccinated workers back into our, our hospitals this is something that the opposition is, is called for Kevin Falcon. We just played a clip of him. The government, though, holding firm on this, saying, no, we need to have that vaccine mandate in place. Let me play a clip here for you, Kevin, get your thoughts. So this is uh, Chris Newell. He is a, a local a local government politician in the north of British Columbia in Bulkley, Nachaco. And listen to how he describes here how there was a, an unvaccinated doctor in town who can't work in the system anymore and the impact that's had. Let's listen. We lost the doctor in Smithers um, at, at the hospital because of this. He, that's, that one doctor might have 2,000 patients. You know, I, I live in a town that's got maybe 2,500 people. You know, like you, you lose one healthcare professional, it, it's huge. Okay, I think it's interesting. Like, I don't know why a doctor wouldn't get vaccinated. But anyway, your, your thoughts, Kevin. What do, you, what do you think of that mandate? I think it's, it's now really not about um, necessarily patient safety and it's it's more about politics and and that's unfortunate right i'm a big believer in vaccinations 
Yes. I got vaccinated. Have I had all my boosters? No, I haven't because I've had COVID. I think I think we we just got to be honest with the public. So if you really look at the data, does the COVID vaccination and boosters reduce your risk of getting COVID? marginally, you know, it really doesn't have this huge impact in preventing you from getting COVID. What it's good at doing is if you have underlying health conditions, lung disease, other things, it it helps to keep you out of hospital. You know, so when we say that a, a young healthcare worker who's healthy can't work in the system because they haven't got a COVID vaccination, it isn't going to reduce their chance of really getting COVID or spreading it around to any significant extent. But then you look on the other side, we have policy that you know, and you, you find this online very easily, policy from government that says, hey, look, we're in a real criti- critical shortage of healthcare workers. If you have COVID and you don't have a high fever, you're expected to come to work and put a mask on. So oh. if you really step back as a, as a logical person and say, well, wait a minute, like we're preventing people from working if they haven't had a vaccine, but we're telling people they have to come to work because we're short-staffed if they have an active COVID infection. T- to me, that just seems ridiculous. Um, It just doesn't make a lot of evidence-based sense. And, you know, it's a very small number of healthcare workers who did not get vaccinated in certain regions of the province. It's higher. So that here makes a really good point. Um, You know, and and sure, I mean, they may have their own individual reasons for not having wanted to get vaccinated. I think if you're a a young, healthy 30-year-old, you can make the case that it's not going to offer you a huge amount of benefit. Um, and, and we've, you know, we sort of painted this as black and white, and it's, it's not totally black and white. Again, the majority of people should get vaccinated, just like they should get yeah. vaccinated for the flu and shingles and everything else, you know. But, um, but unfortunately, we've just, we've had bad messaging on this, and we really are an outlier now, you know, in the world with having that mandate. And, and is that really the right thing? I'm not so sure now when other policies would be more effective at reducing spread, right? Like, you know, I look at the emergency department and there's people lined up down the hallway, many of them who who have COVID, you know, they're not in masks. There's not great ventilation systems. We have old hospital buildings. Like there's so many other things that we could do that would actually protect those patients. But it's it's easy to say, no, 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 we're protecting patients because we have this mandate don't ask us questions about everything else. Um, But I I think it's kind of pulling the wool over people's eyes a little bit. Kevin, I really appreciate your thoughts this morning. Thank you for coming on. Mike, anytime. Let's talk about the housing crunch in Metro Vancouver now. We got the most unaffordable housing in the country. Just taking a look at some of the numbers in recent a survey done by rates.ca, which is a mortgage website. It says the median household income in Vancouver, just under $87,000 a year. Just one problem, the average price of Vancouver home, $1.2 million. So the numbers do not work. The math does not compute here. This The rates.ca report calculates the average home price 249% more expensive than an average household can afford to buy. How do we fix this? Every politician is promising to fix this now. This is top of mind issue. Doesn't matter what level of government, every level of government, every political party, every politician, they are all promising to fix this situation. 
Can this be fixed? Got Craig Cameron standing by to discuss. Let's have a listen to Pierre Polyev here, the federal conservative leader. The video he put out the other day, this racked up uh, 2 million views on social media here within a couple of days. Have a listen to him, Polyev here, describe who dealt this mess. What? Who is responsible for this problem? Have a listen to what he says here. What do you think is the most expensive thing that goes into a new house in, say, Vancouver? Is it labor? Lumber? Land? Nope. Government. Permit delays, changing rules, pricey consultants, lawyers' fees, charges, taxes, etc. Okay. Government is the problem. Government is what's driving up the cost of housing in the city. The red tape, the bureaucracy, the delays, the permitting. If you just get government out of the way, lower their taxes, would that really solve this? Is is this the problem? Government has, has created this mess. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Craig Cameron. Craig is a former city councillor in West Vancouver, and I am pleased to welcome him back to the show. Craig, thanks a lot for coming on today. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, I read with great interest your, your thoughts on the uh, the Polyev video here you posted online the other day. Tell me your thoughts on that. When you listen to Polyev here say that government is the problem, do you agree with him? Um, no, not not entirely. I mean, I think that there is a huge problem, and what Polyev is doing effectively in the video is channeling the frustration, anger that people have, particularly young Canadians, that um, housing is is cripplingly expensive and they're just they can't find uh, adequate housing where they want to live. Um, and that's uh, and, and they may not be able to do that for most of their lifetime. So he's channeling uh, the anger about the uh, the problem accurately. But of course, his his uh, his solution or his identification of the problem is 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 reductive, and it's it's politically slanted because he wants to put the blame on uh, the, the federal liberals, where sure. whereas the problem is much more multi multifaceted. Yeah, do you think that like he clearly paints the government as a problem, and if government would just get out of the way, maybe housing would become a, more affordable, or at least it would you be, the situation would be better. Do you do you think the government should take a bigger role? In housing, like maybe government should be building more housing. Well, I think that in terms of affordable housing, a truly affordable housing, uh, it's clear that the, uh, the the federal government decision in the nineteen seventies to get out of building, you know, affordable housing through CMHC and such, was uh, was really impactful. In that, a lot of the affordable housing, uh, the below market housing we have right now for, in Vancouver, British Columbia, is housing that was built. Uh, under those federal programs. And we haven't really done anything for four decades or more since then. Uh, and so now we're playing catch up. So I, I think just saying government needs to get out of the way is is uh, is, is, is incorrect if you're looking at, um, for example, below market alternatives. Not to say that there isn't things that government could do to get out of the way and there isn't uh, government isn't part of the problem, but uh, government's washing their hands of housing and just letting the private sector... Uh, try to fix the mess is, is not going to work, uh, particularly for those who can't afford to pay what the market um, is, is, is seeking uh, right now. What do you think of the pressures from Im- the immigration targets that we have in Canada? We're bringing in record number of uh, new, new, ca- new Canadians, new uh, immigrants to the country, and we, everybody knows we need more workers. We've got, a, we got a, a labor shortage here. We need more skilled workers coming into Canada. But do you think the numbers are, 
are too high. And this is something you pointed out in your analysis here that Polyev is careful not to blame immigration here for the housing pressures. But your thoughts? Well, first of all, we are a country of immigrants. Both of my parents were immigrants to Canada. And we, no. we, immigration is a big part of, uh, of of the health of Canadian society and the strength of our society. We we're diverse. It's 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 a positive. So the danger when you talk no. about immigration is it can be co-opted by those who are xenophobic. But the re- no. and that's why and that's why Paul Lev wants to stay away from it because he certainly doesn't want to alienate um, I- I- immigrants or those recently who've immigrated who may vote for him. But there's no doubt that we should be trying to match uh, the levels of immigration with our ability to house and service the people we're welcoming into the country. It seems uh, cruel and, and, and poor policy um, to have levels of immigration and invite people into the country and then, and, the, and then leave them no options for adequate housing, to have health services be inadequate, um, et cetera, et cetera. So there, there needs to be some pairing or matching of immigration levels to our ability to absorb immigrants and 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 help them lead successful lives in as Canadians. And you know, the last the numbers in the last couple of years have skyrocketed and I think that's part of the problem, but that's I mean the housing problem has exist the housing crisis has existed now. I mean, I've been talking about it for 10 years. Um, yeah. you know, and it's gotten worse. So immigration levels have only spiked recently. So they're a part of the problem now. And I think that they're, they're, you know, at least limiting those levels to the level at which we can absorb would be part of the solution. Uh, but it, again, it's not, it's not the nub of the problem. Speaking to former West Vancouver councillor Craig Cameron, talking about the housing crunch in Vancouver, who can fix this? Is it government needs to fix this? Can the private sector fix it? Do we need both working together? Let me, let me ask your thoughts, Craig, on the provincial government's density plan here, especially as it relates to forcing municipalities to build more housing. So the government has brought forward a, a flurry of housing bills. Maybe one among the more controversial is are, are the multiplex bills, which would allow up to four, in some cases up to six homes to be built on a single family lot in single family zone neighborhoods right now. There is a pushback from some municipalities, some mayors, some councillors that the province is bringing the hammer down on them, that they can't handle all this new housing that the government wants. And I, I got a laugh when I, I saw you, you referred to this as a, a can't-do attitude by some municipalities here in Metro. Let me play a clip here for you. Get your thoughts. This is Eric Woodward, the mayor of Langley Township on a recent show. Not happy with this forced density from the province. Here's what he had to say to me, then I'll get your thoughts. Randomly sprinkling six-unit apartment buildings next to single-family homes on dead-end cul-de-sacs. I'm not sure that's a plan. That may be a good soundbite to respond to a housing crisis, but that's not, that's not a real plan. That's not a real plan, sprinkling six-plex apartments into single-family neighborhoods on a, on a dead-end street, as he described there. Craig Cameron, your thoughts? Well, he's right that it's not a plan because you know nobody's proposing that plan. So I don't know what he's, he's he, I don't know what straw man he's fighting against. But frankly, that can't do attitude uh, is is super frustrating for me to hear because when I was on council for eleven years in in West Vancouver, I sort of learned firsthand how how resistant communities are to change, certain communities, and how the deck is stacked against 
any 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 real housing change. And what that does is, is you know, homeowners vote and ultimately existing homeowners aren't benefited from any change or new development in their in, in their neighborhoods. They want things to stay the same. They benefit from the status quo. So those people vote in disproportionate numbers. And so local councillors and mayors are uh, driven uh, and, and influenced to a great extent by those voters. And as a result, you have many municipalities, not all, but many municipalities who have for decades resisted any significant change. West Vancouver, for example, growth rate has been minuscule for decades. And um, this is this is, you know, if you if you want to talk about government being the problem, I think local governments are a big part of the problem um, because of this political dynamic that tends towards uh, maintaining the status quo, which is not working in terms of housing. And so when you ask me my opinion of the provincial measures, yeah. I am thrilled by them. I actually uh, was speaking out at UBCM for years and talking to ministers, speaking up in plenary sessions, saying, the province needs to get, get, get you know, enter the field um, with carrots and sticks and needs to uh, give incentive, incentivize municipalities to build the kind of housing that their, their communities need, that the young people need. So in a place like West Vancouver, once you turn, you know, once you get into your 20s and you go to school, there's nowhere for you to, there's no housing for you to live in, uh, in your, when you're a young adult or you're raising a young family, unless, uh, you know, unless you're fabulously wealthy and it's usually family money. So you're forcing the young people in the community to move out. You're forcing the older people who want to downsize to move, to leave the community and you're, and you're forcing other nearby communities to pick up the slack. And so the province implementing these rules on a province wide basis and saying everybody has to contribute, every community must accept some change and some density is exactly the direction we need to go. And mayors like Mayor Woodward really should stop spending their time explaining why they don't like what's happening and start getting with the program and, and figuring out how they can make it work well for Langley, because he can. It mm. will work for Langley if done carefully. And so why not spend your time doing that instead of complaining about you know the the, the measures that are that are patently necessary. I mean, we need more housing. I don't think he would yeah. disagree with that. He just wants to do it on the on the on the slow train, and that's not working. Craig, thank you for your thoughts on this today. I appreciate it a lot. Yeah, no, no worries, Mike. I, I'm I'm glad uh, I'm glad to talk about. It. I am by far the most uh, knowledgeable person on this subject, but I you, you can probably tell I have some strong feelings about it, and it's. It's, it's really frustrating to see after so many years of people being very vocal about this being a problem, the housing uh, crisis being a problem. I mean, it's that it's that, that so little has happened. I mean, it's, I'm gratified now that federal parties and, and provincial governments are taking it seriously and are yeah. acting at, at the level that they need to act to make real change. But it shouldn't have taken this long. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. I welcome I welcome this discussion at the federal level. All right, let's talk about the most popular vehicles on the road in British Columbia. Do you drive one of these vehicles? The data just out from ICBC. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Zach Spencer. Zach is an automotive journalist. Motormouth Canada on YouTube. 300,000 subscribers on there. Hey, Zach, thanks a lot for coming on. Anytime, Mike. 
Okay, Zach, let's take a look at the uh, most popular vehicles on the road here in British Columbia, according to latest ICBC stats here. Vehicle number one, top of the list, the Honda Civic. And it doesn't seem to be much of a, a contest here, Zach, that that's the most popular vehicle on the road in BC, according to ICBC. Does that surprise you? Uh, it doesn't surprise me, but we also have to go through these this list with uh, a focus on what's actually out in the marketplace. So what you have here are the vehicles that are registered in British Columbia, old and yeah. new. So these aren't the current best sellers. These are historically best sellers. And the Honda Civic, up until about five years ago, maybe a little longer than that, was the best-selling passenger vehicle in Canada when you take out pickup trucks, Okay. But what has happened in the in the next five years is SUVs have absolutely taken over. So, uh, Mike, I got a pop quiz for you. What do you think the average age of a car on the road is in British Columbia? The average age. Ooh, boy, man, I just taking a wild guess. Ten years old? Yeah, close to twelve years old. Twelve, okay. And and they have and they're older here in British Columbia than they are in Eastern Canada due to salt and corrosion. So yeah. you've got to remember that this is a snapshot of the history of vehicles sold uh, dating over, like, I would take my dog for a walk in the neighborhoods I go through. I see many cars that are 15, 20 years old. So, uh, yeah, Honda Civic has historically been an amazing seller. It was the best-selling passenger car up until about five years ago. Uh, then the RAV4 took over. So it's, it now has the, uh, far and away the most registrations. Okay, and then we look down the list a little further. That's a great point you made there. These are the existing vehicles on the road that we're talking right now. So we're talking old and new here on the road. Number two, oh, there it is, the Toyota RAV4, number two. I guess this has really shot up the list, Zach. Yeah, I mean, it was always a great seller. And then I guess about seven, eight years ago, they brought out a RAV4 hybrid, and that catapulted it into um number one spot and there's no question that people love the RAV4 and you'll see on this list mostly sedans that's also a function of the fact that we have an old fleet of cars on the road yeah and when we take a look at this list here this list list uh, obviously excludes uh, pickup trucks right like light duty vehicle trucks right because I don't see because normally you'd have the what the Ford F-150 be on this list right Absolutely, and then, uh, but you've got to remember, it's a couple of things at play here. We have an urban versus rural divide. Most people live in urban areas. The largest population would be uh, Vancouver, the greater Vancouver area, and Victoria, uh, Kelowna. Then a lot of people buy SUVs and cars. When you uh, pickup trucks are popular, but not as popular as those two kinds of cars. Okay, we go down the list again. So number three, let's just round out the top five here, Zach, for your thoughts. So number three, the Toyota Corolla is the third most uh, popular vehicle on the road right now in BC. Number four, the Honda CRV, and rounding out the top five, the Mazda three. The Mazda three. Mm-hmm. They still make that. Oh yeah, Mazda three. It's, it's okay. still popular, but you've got to okay. remember same thing. These are these are historical numbers. Actually, I'm going to go through it here. Uh, I'll go through the list. Uh, Civic is a sedan. Corolla is a sedan. Mazda three is a sedan. Then down the list farther, it's Honda Accord, um, and then the Toyota Camry. So those are probably half of the list are sedans. If we did this in five or ten years, Mike, it would be uh, SUVs would be at the top of the list. And yeah. Canadians have voted with their wallet and overwhelmingly have shifted towards uh, uh, small and compact SUVs 
And a big part of that is because car companies have been increasingly clever at eking out more and more fuel economy. So the fuel economy used to get in your 10-year-old whatever sedan, you can now get similar kind of fuel economy in an SUV, and that's what people want. Speaking to Zach Spencer, Motormouth Canada on YouTube. So the top five existing vehicles on the road, you got Honda, Toyota, and Mazda. So three big Japanese automakers here. What does that tell you, Zach? I mean, you know, the Japanese automakers continue to be popular, but does it also reflect the quality of their products here, that these vehicles are still on the road? Yeah, I I think so. That's part of it. But, you know, Canadians uh, are really pragmatic when it comes to car buying, right? We buy vehicles that we think we're going to get an overall good value with. And historically, the Japanese brands have delivered a great value when you buy the car, when you use the car, but especially when you go to sell the car, they hold their value. And that's one of the reasons. Um, I'm just looking at the top 10 here. We have uh, two domestic cars that are on there, the Ford Escape, which is a, a compact SUV, and the good old Dodge Grand Caravan is on the list. And the Grand Caravan's gone away. It's not even sold any longer, so that'll fall down the list. But these are all really pragmatic vehicles, and people are probably thinking to themselves, well, hey, wait a second. Where's that Tesla I see on every street corner? Well, we have to wait, as I said, historically for all of those new vehicles that are registered now to trickle through the fleet. And we have an old fleet of cars in BC. We don't have a lot of salt, so cars last a long time here. Yeah, no, those are great points. And then rounding out the top 10 here after the Ford Escape Dodge Grand Caravan, then it is the Honda Accord, the Nissan Rogue, and the Toyota Camry. So that's the top 10 vehicles currently on the road and this is going to change big time right do you expect to see like tesla to crack that top 10 here going forward um i don't know i mean if you look at tesla globally they're selling a lot of cars and they have had the best-selling car for 2023 in the model y but in british columbia we have anywhere depending on where you live 10 to 15 percent of electric penetration right so same thing again you have to you have to displace not only new car sales and evs are displacing anywhere from 10 to 15 percent of current new vehicles but you have to then displace all of the old vehicles on the road this is what i say to people all the time about where you know you want to uh, everybody thinks they're going to change things overnight by buying an electric car no because your neighbor has an eight-year-old car, and he's going to keep driving it, or she's going to keep driving it for another five or six years. That yeah. car, we we will not be replacing a massive fleet of vehicles that are perfectly good um, with new, uh, highly expensive electric cars. We're going to get some people do that, but not a huge majority of people. Okay, that brings me to my next point, and I'm really interested in your thoughts on this, Zach, and that is the EV electric vehicle mandates we've seen introduced at the federal level and now at the provincial level as well. So 2035, that is the deadline to go 100% electric vehicle sales in Canada. And if we don't hit that target, there would be fines on the automakers for not hitting that target. I find these targets to be... I wild maybe wildly optimistic. I, I'm curious your thoughts, but let me listen, let's listen to Pierre Justin Trudeau on this right now. So this is the Prime Minister here on these EV sales targets here. Have a listen to him. Do, uh, t- Tim, do we have that clip of Trudeau there? 
we're moving forward with specific targets of 20% electric vehicles for all new sales uh, in, uh, in 2026. 60% by 2030 and 100% by 2035 and with the kind of demand and the kind of solutions being brought forward by the auto industry uh, it would surprise it wouldn't surprise me for us to reach some of those targets ahead of time okay so he thinks that we can actually get there even sooner than 2035 100% electric vehicle sales in Canada Zach your thoughts well, do people still believe what Justin Trudeau says? I mean, uh, the, uh, the polls say no. Uh, it isn't going to happen. It is not going to happen. You think it's wildly optimistic? I call it fantasy land. We're not going to have 20% EV sales in, the, in, in two years. It isn't going to happen. British Columbia, we have a ZEV mandate here, and it's not what's driving EV adoption. What is it, Mike? It's Saving the money? price of gas. Sure, of no, course. No, it's, it's the price of gas. Yeah. Canadians, back to my point, are pragmatic. We buy what we think is the best value. So there's people that are driving from Maple Ridge and Port Moody into the city every day, and they're buying a new car, and they look at each other, husband and wife or whomever, a couple, and they say, listen, this is crazy. We're spending this many hundreds of dollars on gas. Let's buy an electric car. And that's great for them, but they can afford it. It is not democratic, though. I mean, not everybody can afford to buy an electric car. They're just they're they're way more expensive than regular cars. All right. My guest is Zach Spencer, Motormouth Canada on YouTube. Let's go to your calls here. Sean in Logan Lake. Hiya, Sean. Go ahead. I'm good. And and, I just did the math the other day because I was hearing about this kind of thing. And if we did, if you take just the vehicles, just the personal vehicles, we would need eight times the power that we presently produce in Canada, electric, to do all those vehicles. That's not including the commercial vehicles. That's not including the businesses, the homes, nothing. We, we don't have the grid. We don't have yeah. the power of production. Sean, thank you for making that point. Zach, your thoughts? I mean, this is a frequent criticism of this plan that's brought up. Where we got the electricity? We don't have enough electricity. We don't have enough charging stations. Your thoughts? Well, I, I heard on CKNW, it was yourself and Keith talking about, uh, you know, BC Hydro doesn't have uh, that much more room in the grid to add for mega projects and so on. Same in the yeah. province of Quebec. They have um, huge amounts of industry that's supposed to be coming online, and they've asked those developments to delay it because they just don't have extra capacity in the grid. So we've done all, we're spilling all the water we can in BC. Um, so we have to come up with it some other way. I mean, we, we're going to have to eventually get to nuclear in order to, to, to power the grid to keep our, uh, our, you know, to keep all these cars. And it's not just cars, those might. Everything is being electrified. Your, sure. your lawnmower, your leaf blower, your, your snow blower. I mean, everything is moving towards electric. So yeah. uh, it's just a huge drain on the grid. Yeah. John in the North Shore. Hi, John. Go ahead. Hi. Um, so we have a food distribution company. So the industry, or the, is the industry that I'm in, nobody has been able to make a tr- an electric truck. Nobody that will run not only a refrigerator, but a reefer. So that a reefer is a refrigerator freezer, so you can choose whatever you want to put the temperature at. So those oh. currently are either alternator-driven, so off the motor, or they're driven by diesel, where they run off of their own separate tank, and they 
they have a diesel motor inside the, the reefer. Nobody can figure out a way to run it off an electric motor on a car or a truck, or a truck yeah. because it draws so much power, it'll drain the battery within 90 minutes. Sure. You have no mileage. Thank, thank you, John. Well, they are making... Um they are making electric trucks now. Zach, have you test driven any of those new electric pickups? Yeah, I've done pickup trucks, but he's talking about like a five-ton truck or yeah. maybe larger that's got to have a, fr- a refrigeration unit on it. Right. These are all the problems. I think. I think the, for for large vehicles in the future, it's going to be hydrogen uh, that is easily to fill up, just like you would for at a gasoline station. You, you fill it with hydrogen. It has a, a fuel cell on board, and it creates electricity on board. It's got its, its own mm. little generator, and that could uh, sustain. And I think that's the way it's going to go for large vehicles and long haul will be hydrogen. But then we have to build out the hydrogen infrastructure uh, to have it at filling stations, especially across, say, like the Trans-Canada Highway. So it's, it's, uh, it's going to... It's not going to happen by 2035. We're going to have way more electric um, uh, adoption. That's for sure. We're going to have yeah. more and more vehicles just because the manufacturers are being mandated to make electric and hybrid and plug-ins. I think what's going to happen with these regulations, it won't be uh, 100% EV. It'll be 100% electrified, which opens the door for hybrids to be included in that mandate. Yeah, yeah. Really great points. Paul in Surrey. Hi, Paul. Go ahead. Hey, Paul. Yeah, yes. go ahead. Yes, yes. Just a cap on a list of cars earlier on. I have a 2006 Mazda 3, and uh, I'll say that's my favorite car of reliability. I have 295,000 on it. I drive it like Mario Andretti, and it doesn't burn oil other than, <laughs> other than the regular shocks and brake repairs, uh, which I'm a self-trained mechanic due to the fact that I had a 75 MGB as my first car, so you know where that is. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> Mazda 3, they're great. Had to take them. Thank you, Paul. I had a, a Mazda once, a Mazda hatchback I drove for a while, and uh, it was pretty darn reliable, too. Zach, what do you think of the Mazda? Is, the, is that the GLC? Is that what you have? Well, GLC? yes. As a matter of fact, I did. I had a GLC. Yeah. yeah. There you go. No, they're great cars. I mean, it's a small Japanese company. They have uh, they put a priority on uh, drivers like the previous caller who liked a spirited drive, great handling, um, you know, a good dynamic. So they're they're very popular. They have okay. They have a lot of products to choose from. Zach, it's always great to have you on here. Thanks for coming on. Anytime, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.